Thanks for listening to another message from Life Christian Church. We hope it challenges and encourages you and helps you to grow in your faith. Don't forget, download our app to stay up to date with what's going on at Life. Share your prayer requests or pray for others. Read the Bible online and much, much more. Simply search for Life Christian Church in your app store. Well, continuing in our series, A Month and a Bit of Prayer, because uh, it has gone on for more than August. And uh, it's just such a deep and, uh, and compl- not complex, but uh, uh, just so many facets of prayer that we can be digging into. And uh, we'll, we'll go for a few more weeks and then go on, or a couple more weeks after this and then go on to some other stuff. But I, I really pray that through this time we are being prompted to be a people of prayer. We need to be a people of prayer, hey? And uh, last week... We looked at um, Jesus' words in Matthew 6, where he actually talks about our prayers being rewarded, that our prayers are rewarded. And it's probably not something we think about much. We think about prayers being answered, but we dug into this a little bit last week. And we learned that communion with God, just that relationship with God, and just the fact that we can approach our Creator in prayer is an incredible reward. And from that intimacy that we find as we pursue a personal relationship with God, we then find alignment with God. Uh, And that's really, really important. Alignment with God is us being in a position of confidence saying, God, I trust you. And and I I talked about God's will, you know, and when we pray, it's not, well, this is my will here and this is God's will over here. And as I pray, we're kind of finding a happy medium and, and, and meeting somewhere in the middle. No, it is this me being shifted over to understanding God's will for my life and pursuing that and to be able to pursue that with confidence simply because I trust God. But the trusting God actually comes from point one, which is that intimacy with God, the communion with God. And then from that comes God's provision. He promises he will provide for us. Now today, I want to look just briefly at one aspect of the prayer life of Jesus. Some people often ask, and and I understand why, uh, well, if Jesus was God, uh, why did he have to pray? And yet we have the example of Jesus. Uh, He had this wonderful, habitual prayer life. Why did he need to pray? Well, without going into a long exposition of this this morning, let me say the Bible clearly presents Jesus in two ways. First of all, he is God. No question. He is deity. He is part of this triune Godhead, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But then we have another aspect of Jesus where he constrained himself as he lived on earth to be fully human. Jesus is 100% God and 100% human all at the same time. Jesus was never less than God, but he lived his life as a man as though he was never more than a man. And that's why he prayed, because he was fully human. And I want to have a look at one of Jesus' most human points, one of the most human moments in his life to learn something about prayer. Reading from Mark 14 and 32. 
They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Then he took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Let me pause there and pose a question. It tells us that in that moment, Jesus was deeply distressed. And he said, my soul is overwhelmed even to the point of death. Does that sound like God or does that sound like Jesus the man? In every way, that was Jesus being fully human. From verse 35, going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And when he says, Abba, Father, as we discussed last week, this beautiful Aramaic word, the closest we have, is dad. And in this most human point of his life, in this moment, he doesn't pray some kind of rehearsed liturgical prayer. He just sends out this cry for help. Dad, help. You know, if my kids are in trouble, they don't say, Oh, my father, I beseech thee, would you render unto myself thine assistance? That's just stupid. Kids just say, Dad, help. Dad, help. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We turn to Luke 22 and continue the story. Verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. We continue the story from John 8, 10 and 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Let's quickly compare those verses because in Mark 14, Jesus in total anguish cries out to God and says, Dad, help. And yet by the end of that prayer, Jesus takes the initiative, steps forward and says, I am he. And when he said those words, it tells us everybody fell to the ground. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. What do you hope for when you pray? Most of us, myself included, when we come to pray, we do so because we're hoping that that prayer will be answered. When I pray, often the motivation I have is that I'm hoping for things to change. But let's flip that around. What does God hope for when you and I pray? 
Jesus goes into this prayer in the most human moment of his life. And he's, he's, he's praying that things would change. Father, if it's possible, just take this cup from me, please. Please change this situation. But then he says, yet not your will, but mine be done. Not my will, but yours be done. I think I've shared this story before, but a long time ago. I was with a small team of people praying for somebody who was terminally ill. Spent some time there and and, uh, I know that in the course of the prayers that we're praying as we spent time with this person, I simply prayed, Lord, your will be done. Now we came out of that room and one of the couples that I was with took me aside and actually rebuked me for my lack of faith. And they said, you don't pray the Lord's will will be done. We know what the Lord's will is. The Lord's will is that he would be healed. Can I say, that's not actually a lack of faith. Lord, your will be done is actually the ultimate expression of faith. And let me mess with your head a little bit this morning as we dig into the scripture here. I want to show you something from the text that we can learn from this most painful moment in Jesus' life. We go to Matthew 16 and 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Now contrast that with Matthew 26 and 47 while he was still speaking. Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. Friends, don't miss this. I believe this is why sometimes our prayer life is so ineffective. Because we fill our lives with Peters and we rebuke every Judas. We love the Peters, we surround ourselves with the Peters, we listen to the advice of the Peters and the prayers of the Peters and the encouragement of the Peters because the Peters say, never Lord, this will never happen to you and we love that. And at the same time, we're praying away every Judas in our life. But notice this, Jesus calls Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And I don't know if you notice this, but he calls Judas the traitor friend. He calls Peter Satan and he calls Judas friend. Friend, 
do what you came for. And Jesus calls Peter Satan because Peter is hindering Jesus from fulfilling his God-given purpose. And he calls Judas the betrayer his friend because Judas' actions are actually propelling Jesus towards his God-given purpose. Is this messing with your heads this morning? This is what I find so difficult about you know, the prosperity movement, the name it and claim it movement. And they can sound so deeply spiritual. But the more I listen to them, the more I can't help but hear Jesus' words to Peter. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Friends, we have to be very, very careful not to welcome every Peter and rebuke every Judas. Because when we do that, we might actually be working against the very thing that will propel you towards God's ultimate purpose for your life. And you've got to get a hold of this. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane starts his prayer saying, Father, take this cup from me. Please change the situation. I don't like it. But he finishes the prayer with, but not my will, but yours be done. Now, what was the end result of Jesus praying? Did the situation change? Absolutely not. Everything that Jesus was facing at the start of that prayer, he still had to face when he finished the prayer. So what changed? The situation didn't change. The man changed. The situation didn't change. Jesus changed. He went in one way and he came out a totally different way. And friends, the greatest benefit of prayer is not necessarily that your situation changes. Praise God, it sometimes does. But the greatest benefit of prayer is that you change. The greatest benefit of prayer is that I change. That when we pray, we actually become a different person. You might still have to face the problem. You may still have to live with that difficulty. You may still have to walk a hard road, but you will be different. In the same way, we sometimes shut ourselves away in our prayer closet, uh, escaping the world and saying, God, please change the world. God, please change the world. God, please change the world. And God says, you know what? I'm going to answer that prayer, but here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to change you and then you can go out and change the world. I got one clap. <laughs> and then I just got a whole bunch of sympathy. Anyway. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to talk this morning, not for too long, but I want to leave you with an understanding of some very real hindrances to prayer. And we find this in God's Word. Hindrance number one, wrong motives. And this is one of the biggest ones and what we've just talked about. James 4 and 3 when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Simply, God won't honour selfish prayers or prayers that are birthed out of a self-seeking desire. God sees what's going on in your heart and you can't fool him, you can't manipulate him, you can't get God to do something that he simply doesn't want to do. Hindrance number two, lack of faith. 
James 1 and 5, if any one of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded and unstable in all they do. James tells us that if you pray, you shouldn't doubt. Because that person, if you're doubting, it's kind of tossed around by the sea, tossed around by the wind. He says that man should think, not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. We must recognize that as you look at the miracles of Jesus, so often those miracles are simply the result of people's faith, where Jesus responds to their expression of faith. Matthew, five, uh, Matthew 8 and 5, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Verse 13, then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Matthew 13, 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue. They were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, this, uh, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where did, then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, only in his, in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And get this, and he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Matthew 9.20, just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned to her and said, take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you, and the woman was healed from that very moment. All of those wonderful miracles were the result of people's faith, or in the case of his hometown, Jesus couldn't do many miracles because of their lack of faith, because people were offended by him. Friends, for you and I, we need to be doing the things in life that cause our faith to increase. Now, I'm not going to go into a long explanation of how we do that today. We did look at it a little bit last week. But faith, simply put, is a byproduct of trust. And again, we spoke about that at length last week, that as I get to know God more, as I draw close to Him, that's actually when I learn to trust Him. Trust is built through knowledge, experience, Understanding, familiarity, that's why we're developing a relationship with God. 
And the more you trust something or someone, the greater your faith in that object or person will be. So the more you get to know Jesus, the greater your faith in Jesus will be. So if you walk with Jesus every day, you will be developing a great trust in Him. And from that position of trust, your faith to believe for bigger and bigger things will grow. Next year, this church turns 20. Which is pretty exciting. I'm excited. You guys didn't woo, but that's all right. Next year, this church turns 20. It just doesn't feel the same. But for Kerry and I, planting this church wasn't the start of our ministry journey learning to trust God. Leading up to the planting of this church, We had 14 years of traveling in faith all over the globe, preaching the gospel, trusting God for provision, at times desperately pressing into God for breakthroughs. And for 14 years, just seeing God time and time and time and time again, guide us and direct us and provide and see the most amazing things that God and God alone can do. And that is where we developed our trust. And that is where our faith grew. And through the experience of 14 years, of learning to trust God for bigger and bigger and bigger things, then when God made it so clear to us that he wanted us to sell up everything and move our family from Queensland to Tasmania for the second time and start a church from nothing with no one and no promise of of anything at all, we said yes Because we had developed the faith through learning to trust God and seeing His miraculous provision for 14 years. And friends, here is where we need to be so careful with our Western mindset and our cultural conditioning because sell up everything, move your family interstate, start a church from scratch with no promise of anything simply does not make sense from a human perspective. But if we have to rationalize everything that God calls us to do from a human perspective, friends, we'll never do anything. Amen? Doesn't make sense from a human perspective. But how cool is it that God is not limited by a human perspective unless we are the ones limiting Him? And a growing faith in Him brings a deeper trust in Him. Then you'll begin to see things happen because faith gets God's attention. And faith is what launches us, you and I, into the arena of God's supernatural activity. Can I hear an amen? But here's the thing. If you only come to Jesus a couple of times a year when you have a problem, you're not actually approaching Him in faith and confidence out of any kind of place of relationship or communion or trust, you're just approaching him out of of desperation. And if you don't really know Jesus, you won't be able to really trust Jesus. But hey, if praying about something makes it happen, I'll give it a shot. But the end result is you won't truly expect much to happen. And nothing much will happen. I hope that makes sense. So that's hindrance number two. Hindrance number three, simply put, sin. Isaiah 1 and 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. 
Isaiah 59 and 1, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your, your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, guys, none of us are perfect. Absolutely not. But we cannot live, we cannot entertain habitual sin, unrepentant sin. Ephesians 4 and 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We grieve the Holy Spirit when we refuse to deal with the issues of sin that are going on in our lives. When we entertain stuff that we know is wrong. We need to be filled with the Spirit, not grieving the Holy Spirit. I'm going to invite the team to come back this morning. Friends, we've got to be a people of faith-filled prayer. And it's a faith that comes out of that deep relationship with God, the, the confidence where we have learned to trust God. But praying in our lives for God's agenda to be fulfilled, not our own agenda. Your will, as Jesus prayed, not my will. And an honest prayer that comes out of self-examination and honest repentance when repentance is needed. And Luke encourages us in Luke 11 and 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Friends, the good news is that he, promise, he promises us that if we seek him, we shall find him. If we seek him with the right heart, the right attitude.